0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk in relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Glad that you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter twenty. Uh, we, we have hit the 20s, so we are nearing the end quickly. And so, let's talk about that um, today. Like when you see the TV out, if you're if you've been a part of Calvary for a while, we all know that is like Nick's going to geek out, and usually we go real deep into a topic. And uh, but this morning, uh, I, I would just safely say. This whole morning is going to be one geek out fest. And so like uh, strap in, like if you're taking notes, like make sure you got plenty of lead and ink and paper. Um, And and it's okay. If there's some things that go over your head, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that our like finite minds cannot perfectly understand God. I, I don't, nobody's batting a thousand at perfectly understanding who God is. It's kind of like that, uh, uh, I've been seeing a lot of reels where us guys, we're weird, right? We're we're so immature at times where we'll take a big rock and we want to throw it into some water to see how deep it really is. And, And in part, that's the purpose of this, is that we want to take a rock and throw out into the middle of the word of God so we can see the depth of this. That no matter where we are at in our walk, let it be new to faith, or we've been walking with the Lord for decades, let alone that we've, you know, maybe had very little discipleship in the church or we went to Bible college and seminary. The, the word of God is deep. The character of God is deep. And there's always a call for every one of us to take another step. So I'm hoping that in, in every part, pastor included, that as we walk through this, we hear the call that God is saying, come a little bit deeper, with me into the word now obviously we're in revelation so we're, we're getting into the deep end of the pool of eschatology of end times but honestly you can grab any book throw the rock out and to see how deep it is we just so happen to be in revelation and so there's gonna be a lot of slides now if you want to sneaky pick it right and try to get away with that you absolutely can if i see you doing it i'll probably pose you know something like that um <laughs> Or we can just email them to you. There's nothing copyrighted about them. I, we, we'd love for you to have that. Some people want to go back through and do a little further study or fact check the pastor, you know, which is always good too. make sure what I'm reading and quoting is actually, you know, from the word of God. And so if you want those, just like contact staff and we will get them, get, a, get us your email. We'll get them to you. Um, but I'm just going to tell you right now, like buckle up, like we're, we're going to go deep. There's going to be a lot of info but it is good for us. So if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Read along with me. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit. He shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests. Remember Cliff's message a couple weeks ago. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Nice ending to a good chapter, right? Just that warm and fuzzies from the Word of God, that's what we love. And so, yeah, like we've talked, there's going to be a lot here. And so our first slide is kind of a basic outline. Nope, that's fall weekend. (laughs) There it is. That's been a basic kind of timeline that we've been using for a while. I think we even uh, kind of made that when we were going through the book of Matthew, and so we see the different events and wanted to give a timeline to, hey, how is all of this really going to take place? How, the, how is the end really going to come? And it's okay to have those questions. The disciples had those questions. It's actually where we get some of our answers. The disciples came to Jesus and said, you know, hey, how's this all going to go down? And he starts explaining some of this to them. And so we're gonna take this, we're gonna go uh, real deep kind of into it so we understand. And I I wanna push a little bit because a lot of times in the church, there's a a mentality of like, what does all of this matter, right? Like, don't we know Jesus is gonna come back, take care of all of evil and we get to be with him? Like, why do we have to get so like weighed down and burdened by the details? Isn't it just enough to believe in Jesus and that's it? Well, ask somebody that deals with authentic Let's just go with money and counterfeits. The value is in the details. That if we want to stay for whatever reason, let it be a desire, apathy, or or maybe we feel insignificant that we can't dig into the details, details of Scripture, if we stay at a very vague, ambiguous, shallow kind of level, there is the possibility we're leaving the door open for deception. Because we know deception is going to be in the details of it. We were talking about Satan, the great deceiver. That word is used twice in, in reference to him just in this chapter this morning. And we, we want to think that he's going to be this like red devil with horns and a pitchfork and we'll be able to see him a mile away. You know, keeping with the money thing, we think Satan's, you know, pink 50s. Anybody could see a counterfeit. Like nobody's walking into Walmart with Monopoly money being like, all right, I'm ready to buy some chips and salsa. What do you got here? Anybody without any training would be able to see that. But that's not a real counterfeit either. A real counterfeit's going to look exactly like the real thing, but have no value. And and if you just take a quick glance at it, if you don't know the real thing, there's the possibility that we could easily be deceived. That it's when we look at the details of this, this is when we start seeing the separation from the counterfeits to what has true authority. Like one of our Or I say that because my son's here. One of our favorite movies is Catch Me If You Can, uh, based on a true story. And if you remember at the very end of it, when, you know, the bad, like that's, isn't that crazy what Hollywood tells you? Be so good at breaking the law that we would hire you afterwards, right? Like, nope, I would end up going to prison. I wouldn't get a job at the FBI. They're like, you're not that good, right? But at the end, the guy gets hired by the FBI to help work against check fraud, the very thing that he kind of created the game. And this is a guy that is very intelligent about it. And what does he have? Like the eyeglass and he's looking at this check and there's multiple things. Like he's, he's looking at the details because it's in that that he can show how it's a fraud and how they got there. We need to be the same thing in the word of God. That we need to be students of the word of God. Again, it doesn't matter if we're new to faith or we've been walking with Jesus for years. Let's dig into the details and let's get deep this morning. So the first thing that we really kind of see here in Revelation 20 is the resurrection. And a lot of people think that it's just going to be this kind of singular one-time event, but there's actually two resurrections. Some of you kind of know me, and I've already said this before in sermons. I'm kind of morbid, right? I'm weird. Thank you. Nobody amen that. First service man, they are like applauding. And they're like, a I go to a, like a Royals game which is horribly boring because baseball is so bad, or like a Chiefs game, much better sport. And I just see the crowds of people. And you know what I think? And it's every time. You're all going to die. And I'm right. You know, I'm right about that. And I see these massive crowds of people. And I just think, you're going to stand before the Lord one day. You will breathe your last breath to be absent from the body. You are going to step into whatever is next after this life. That will happen. Like, if you didn't know that about yourself, I'm so sorry to break the news to you, right? The death rate of the Lake of the Ozarks, anybody know? 100%, 100% consistent every year, right? It's never dipped, crazy. We're all gonna stand before him. And I see those crowds and I think about that, that you're gonna stand before the Lord. And the other aspect of it is every person's gonna be resurrected. You know, there's some, we'll say politely, branches of Christianity, off to maybe a hard side of the spectrum, that they would say, oh, if you don't believe, you're just gonna be annihilated, right? There, there, there's no hell, you're just gonna be annihilated. You're just gonna cease to exist. There's no punishment or anything like that. Like people that believe they'll go to heaven, everybody else, you're just annihilated. You're just, you're just done, and that's it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that every person that you will ever see, know of, think of, process, have a context for, will be resurrected. They'll be resurrected unto life, or you will be resurrected unto death. And this is what John is writing here about the first and the second resurrection. So you're looking at verses four and five. He says, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's a resurrection before that thousand year period, which is called the millennium right? So there's this thousand year reign of Christ on earth. There's going to be a resurrection before. And it's almost like John knew people were going to ask, well, what about everybody else? And he tells us the rest of the dead did not come to life until after the the millennium, after the thousand year reign had ended. But this is the first resurrection. And there's actually kind of five parts to it. The first resurrection, there's five stages. And again, snap a pic, you can read all the verses. We just don't have time to do a massive study like that. But Jesus is the first stage of that. That's what it means that he's our first fruits. That's the hope. So when people look at me like, you really believe you're going to be resurrected? Absolutely. Why do you believe that? Because my savior walked out of the grave. He was raised to new life in a glorified body. And every one of us that have put our faith and our trust in Jesus, the end isn't, because again, if we stay vague, we think, oh, I just need to believe in Jesus, die and go to heaven. That's it. Well, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that we're gonna be resurrected. Just as he walked out of the grave, so will we. And we will walk in a newness of life. Where is our hope? Where is our understanding of that? He's our first fruits of that. And even to use that term first fruits, Jesus is fulfilling in his death and resurrection the first three festivals of the Jewish people. The fourth one fulfilled at the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there's still three more that he will fulfill in his return. But just as Christ was raised, we, because of our faith in him, will be raised, him, and so he's our first fruits. Then the church, right, and this is kind of split into two, where uh, we hear about the rapture. And so the rapture, for Thessalonians 4, is this, the church will be caught up with Christ, So if I die before then, 1 Thessalonians says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And then any of us that are alive when this happens, it says, then those who are left, they will be caught up in the air with him. That's what was kind of nice when we lived up in St. Joe, our house, our backyard was backed up to a cemetery. So I'd wake up every morning, make my coffee, go out, look out the back window. No graves were disrupted. I thought, all right, it's not today. It was good. Just doing my, just doing a double check right there. Just to make sure I didn't miss anything, right? If I can't find anybody else in the house and the graves are all disrupted, I thought this is going to go bad, right? <laughs> I miss the boat, just like the dinosaurs on the ark, right? So we'll talk about that in Genesis. Sorry. Just kind of like threw that in there. ADD. All right. So the church, really, we're going to be raptured with them. And a lot of people say, well, the rapture is not in the Bible. Well, yeah, that term is Latin. The Bible was written in Greek, the New Testament, at least. And it means that we're going to be caught up with him. And then John 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this, that we will be the second stage of the first resurrection. Then if you remember in Revelation 11, we had the two witnesses. Remember, they were coming out and throwing fire, but then the Antichrist kills them. Their bodies lay out in the city for a few days, and then they were resurrected. And because of their resurrection, that like it caused like wonder and fear to just fill everyone. And we know that there's going to be a 75 day period of time between the seven years of tribulation and the start of this thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom. And in that time, the old Testament saints are going to be resurrected, right? We'll get to high five Abraham, maybe get to talk to Noah, my wife. That's, you know, we talk about like, if you could talk to anybody from the Bible, who would it be? You know what my wife says, the wife of Noah, she goes, I just wonder what it would be like to, you know, just to, just to hear from her, what it was it like to support her husband when everybody thought he was crazy? I thought, why do you want to talk to her about that? <laughs> Is there, are you looking for some pointers or something? Like, do you feel like, if anybody's gonna understand what it's like to support your husband when everybody thinks he's crazy, it'd be Noah's wife. So the Old Testament saints, they're gonna be resurrected. And then those in that seven-year period called the tribulation, those are gonna be killed for their faith, they will be resurrected. And so this is the first resurrection in five basic stages. This is So everyone's going to be resurrected. These are unto life because of their faith in Jesus. Then there's the second resurrection that happens after the thousand-year reign. And so the second resurrection, which you know, Revelation 20 talks about quite a bit, what that would look like, this is the great white throne judgments, the final judgment before the lost being cast into the lake of fire. Jesus will be the judge, and it's for all unbelievers. See, our sin was judged on the cross. The only judgment that, you know, some people are like, oh, I'm going to stand before God. Yes, we will as believers, but not as a, out of fear. We're going to stand before him at the Bema seat. That because of our lives that we lived because of faith in Jesus? What did we do because we believed in him? What were the good things that we did? That's the bema seat judgment. And that's where the rewards will be dished out and handed out from him because of how we lived our lives. Not salvation, a doctrine of rewards. But at the end, at the millennium, at the end of the millennium, those that are lost, those unbelievers that never put their faith and their trust in him, they will be judged. And their punishment, according to how they did. And the biggest thing is their unbelief in Jesus. And Romans is very clear. So when we talk about like, you know, somebody that doesn't believe in Jesus, they, you know, how bad really is it? Romans would tell us that they're storing up wrath. I mean, you think about that. So when we have a burden for the lost, and why should we as the church be so passionate about reaching the lost and the hurting with the gospel of Christ? Because there's a lost broken world that are storing up wrath for themselves. And what they need to know and understand is Jesus satisfied that wrath for them. That's what it means that he's our propitiation, that Romans and 1 John talk about that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. And if they would put their faith and their trust in them, that wrath is not stored up on them, but it was paid in full. And so they're gonna, again, Romans tells us, he's gonna give to each a person according to what he's done. So everyone that you will ever see will be resurrected unto life before the millennium or unto death after the millennium. Now, in our Christian theology, obviously, especially when we get to Revelation, there's a couple of differing views and people may have heard this. And so I want to try to teach uh, a, the best that I can just quickly. What are some of those different views? Because it's really surrounded by two kind of big events, the rapture and the second coming. And the event that separates those is the millennium but there's three different views of thought and they, and they, two of them remove that millennial kingdom. Because what we have to think about is what was, what was Abraham waiting for? What was the kingdom that David was waiting for? When Daniel was in Babylon and he was waiting to be released from Babylon, what do you, what did he want to walk into? What did all of the Old Testament uh, major and minor prophets that were talking about this kingdom that the Messiah would bring in, what is that? That's the millennial kingdom. And out of these three views, two of them say, at least one and a half, that there is no millennial kingdom. There is no kingdom that God is bringing, right? So the first one is called all millennial. And anytime you see an A before a word, it says without. So it just means that there is no future literal thousand year reign of Christ. That what we read verses one to 10, that's referencing us today, right now. Again, the timeline would look like this. We're in the church age and then there'd be one singular event. There's no rapture. Christ is just gonna return. There's gonna be one resurrection. Everybody, believers, unbelievers, there'll be a judgment. And then we walk into new heaven and new earth. There's such a problem with that. And the problem it's the word of God. There's so many verses that if we believe that, that are going to really cause some real friction. And we'll come across these verses and says, well, when is this going to take place? And, and a very simple one, because we're getting ready for Christmas, right? Because, uh, you know, if you ask my wife, she will know it down to almost the minute, I think, when Christmas is going to be here. So if you need more pressure about the holiday season, go talk to her. But there's a prophecy that the angel gives to Mary and she says, the angel says to Mary, it says that he will sit upon the throne of David. Where's the throne of David here? What's that prophetic word that God gave that angel to give to Mary? When is the fulfillment of that? Is that in this framework, there is no kingdom, there's no throne of David and the Messiah cannot fulfill that. Do you see the danger that we're saying here, that there's promises of God that are not going to be fulfilled? So what other promises then is God not going to fulfill? Our salvation, the covenant that we're in with him? No, God is a God who is faithful to his covenants. And so there's times that these theologies, they're going to, they're going to cause some, some stress, and, I'll, and I have friends that, that believe different like this and, and a lot of times we'll get into good discussions and say, well, help me understand what is, how do we fulfill this verse or what does this verse mean and what about this passage and what about this concept? And a lot of times what you'll hear is it's all happening spiritually. It's all allegorical. It's not literal. And again, the danger I have with that is, so how literal do I take the cross? is my sin literally paid for? Or is this just an allegory, just a cool story to try to bring me closer to God, but I'm really not walking in the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. Like, where do I draw that line then of what's literal and what's just story? They would believe that there's no tribulation, which uh, Old and New Testament talk about God pouring out his wrath. But if there's no tribulation, where is that gonna happen? They just said, there is none. So there's all millennialism. The next is called post-millennialism. This is really kind of died out, but it's still, it's still prevalent here and there. It says that Christ, remember post-millennial, so after the millennial reign, Christ will return after the millennium. But they don't believe it to be in a literal thousand years. They would just say after a while, after a long period of time, after God, this is like, you know what? I got nothing else to do. Might as well. Start this kingdom thing and I'll return at that. So the the idea is that there would be significant Christian influence on the culture and the society and that we would bring in the kingdom. So when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, they would say, that's our charge, that, that we need to bring in the kingdom. Our country exists because some pilgrims wanted to get away from this sinful Europe that they were a part of And they wanted to bring in the kingdom. Like kind of a foundational to the understanding of America was the idea that we were going to, this was going to be the new kingdom and we were going to usher in the kingdom of God here in this new land. And the one question, the struggle that I have is because we as the church are going to bring this great, significant Christian influence on the culture and society. Look at our culture and society. Do we feel like it's increasing in a significant Christian influence? Or do we feel like it's decreasing? And so they would say that the church is gonna go through a period of tribulation. And I wanna be clear on this. The church will absolutely be persecuted, us included. But persecution is from the enemy towards us as the church. Tribulation is the wrath of God upon the evil. So to say that the church is gonna go through the tribulation is two different sources. And to compare persecution and tribulation, we don't understand the wrath of God, that there's nothing that the enemy could do that could ever be on par with the wrath of God. And so they would believe that, again, we're in the church age, we're going to bring in the millennium, still one event, very similar to amillennialism, still one event, everything there, and then we enter into the eternal state. A lot of issues with that. And then last, this is what I hold to, This is premillennialism, and I'm throwing in there uh, the rapture. We talked about you could be a pre-trib rapture, you could be a mid-trib rapture, you'd be a post-trib. And I hold to a pre-trib because Scripture tells us that the bride of Christ, the church, is not destined for the wrath of God. He already satisfied the wrath of God on the cross for us. So there's no double jeopardy in God. He's not going to push our punishment on Christ on the cross and then make us. Like you don't spank your kid twice for the one act of disobedience. Some of you are like, well, maybe I kind of do. I just saw like every teenager look over like, but my parent does, right? They are unjust. You can't, like our whole law system is based on that. You can't get charged for the second time. But the pre meaning that Christ will return before the millennium. And so it is one second coming, one, you know, the first advent, the second advent, it's just in kind of two parts and we'll compare and contrast the rapture and the second coming. But this is where the first resurrection starts, obviously with that of Jesus and it'll complete at that 75 day in between there. But this is the first resurrection and the second one's not until after the millennium, just like what Revelation is telling us, right? Look at verses four and five. They came to life and reigned with Christ for the first thousand years. So there's going to be a first resurrection before the millennium. And and he's reigning with Christ on earth. So the second coming is going to be before the millennium. And then it says, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, meaning after. And so you really have to start kind of picking apart the word of God to try to get some of these other thoughts. Or we can just literally take the word of God as what it says. God says what he means and he means what he says. And so uh, premillennialism, Christ will return before, two separate resurrections. And here's the key is, are these the same events or not? The other two would say, absolutely. And when you think about it, I get it. Like rapture, I was talking with a good friend that he has forgotten more about the book of Revelation than I've ever learned. And he said, you know, when you really think about it, the rapture, that is like the most preposterous doctrine of Christian theology. Like you really believe that at any moment all believers are going to be gone. Like in our finite brain when you think about that, no wonder the world thinks we're crazy. But it is the most true that we are waiting upon. Right? So uh, looking at a comparing and contrasting of rapture and the second coming that I hate, I think defends well that premillennial view. See, rapture is a translation of all believers. Like we're all going to get caught up. doesn't mean if we uh, have died or if we're still alive at the moment of rapture, we're going to be translated. We're out of here. But at the second coming, nobody's going anywhere that are on Earth. Saints are going to go to heaven. Saints are returning to the earth. So we have two different locations. The believers are going to go up. Christ and the believers are going to come down at the second coming. He catches us up in the air. We're caught up with him in the air. Christ is coming to the earth. This is to him. This is with him. There's completely difference. The earth is not judged in the rapture, but at the second coming, Jesus is bringing his judgment and righteousness will be established on the earth. The rapture is imminent and signless there is nothing that we're waiting on. So when we talk about the signs of the times, we're not talking about rapture. There's no signs tied to it. But if you look at the second coming, yeah, it absolutely follows a definite predicted signs, but we won't be in the tribulation. We won't be there to try to look at what those signs are. This is before the tribulation, after the tribulation, this begins it. The millennial kingdom begins at the second coming. This is not in the Old Testament whatsoever, the rapture. Why? Because the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Paul would even say in 1 Corinthians 15, if you get later in the chapter, like in verses 50 and a little bit past that, he calls it a mystery. He goes, and, and not a mystery like it's mystical. It's meaning something that has not been revealed until now. And there's a reason for it because... Christ was setting up his church. And so, yeah, the rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but this is predicted often in the Old Testament. Whole books of the Old Testament refer to it. Like if you study the minor prophet Joel, it's all about the day of the Lord. So like everybody knows this. This was the mystery of it. This is for believers only, but all humanity, every eye will see this. Satan's going to be bound there, but there's no binding of Satan in the rapture. It's not about him, it's about the church. And only we will see him. So nobody's gonna be like, oh, I saw Christ rapture the church and I saw him up in there in the clouds in the air. And all. Only believers are gonna see that. And so these are absolutely two different events. And all of this, this isn't like Nick-ism. This is all what scripture says. And I can give you the references if you wanna go into the bigger study of it, I'm trying to paraphrase it for the sake of this morning. And so when you look at that all-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, like when you, uh, we're gonna compare and contrast You know, when we look at these, these line up very similar. There's a few differences, but I I only had room for enough for one slide. But is there a literal thousand years? Yes. And we believe that it's going to be future where they would say, no, we're presently in that. There's two resurrections. We see that clearly in scripture, not just one. When we get to Genesis, we'll talk about like covenants that God made with Abraham. These are unconditional. They have nothing to do with Abraham and his ability to keep the covenant. It's all completely on God. And the easiest way to defend that when the covenant was established, guess what Abraham was doing? Sleeping. God put him to sleep and he alone established the covenant. So it's absolutely unconditional. They would say, no, it's not. We would say there's a huge distinction between Israel and the church. I didn't have the room to write it out. So Israel and the church, there's many distinctions between. All mill post mill would say there are none, which I will tell you, one of these two is the theological a bedrock that anti-Semitism has grown out of. Hitler believed he was doing the work of the Lord. Let's call it. But a lot of cults are that way. And that's why we so need to be good students of the word. And we need to focus and get close in on the details. David Koresh in Waco, Texas thought he was doing the work of the Lord. His number one sermon that was deceiving many was out of Revelation and i read the transcripts of that but when you get close to the details there's there's just no way that i could hold to that the twisting and the negating of the word of god but how many people were deceived to the point of their own death this is this is why this matters because it's not just oh eschatology like when we start thinking about any one doctrine it's connected to all the others That there's times where we'll see a a, a wrong view of eschatology and now it's affecting their view of Christ or it's affecting their view of salvation. That it's not by grace alone through faith, but now it's it's becoming works-based because we have to be found worthy. Some people believe that's why the church has to go through the tribulation. So we are found worthy of our salvation. None of us are worthy of our salvation. That is in Christ alone. That's what makes it salvation. But again, that's where the wrong views are gonna pull into and cause us to be astray. The messianic kingdom, that's future. I'm waiting to hang out with my Messiah in his kingdom. They would say we're in it right now. Rapture, second coming, separate events, they would say same. Binding of Satan, yeah, he's gonna be bound for a thousand years in the future. They would say it's happening right now. Anybody wanna believe that Satan's bound? Right, I mean, Final judgment, these are going to be two different events, they would say, are one. So we see a vast difference, and it matters. It changes. And this is why we need to pause, and we need to dig deep. We need to throw that rock into the deepness of the Word of God and really evaluate the fullness of it. Because one of the questions that I get as a pastor, right? Because we're all kind of, let's just talk, we're all curious about death, right? because you only get one shot at it and nobody's going to fail, right? It's like, it's going to happen. And we were even talking at men's breakfast and, and Russ had a really good point. He's like, there's, there's a fascination with it because we don't know, but it was never meant to be a part of life. You know, some people say that like, oh, dying's just a part of living. No, it's not. That it was never meant to be a part of God's plan. Death wasn't ushered into the world until sin was. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. He doesn't say, oh, I'm life and death. No, no, no. Why do you think he cried? Shortest English verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. Why did he cry? Did he not know that he could raise Lazarus from the dead? No, death was never meant to be a part of this. And so we, we, I get that question, what's heaven gonna be like? And again, let a step a little bit further in the, in the deepness of the pool. A lot of times we think, just believe in Jesus, die, go to heaven, that's it. no. He's got so much for us. But what is that going to be like? And if we remove the millennial kingdom and we apply all those verses as if that's just heaven, again, we're going to get some weird conflicts and we're going to get some weird theology. And so we're going to look at in the millennium, there's actually going to be a government set up in the millennial kingdom. Obviously, Jesus is king. Nobody's taken his spot. But there's going to be a Jewish branch of, of government and there's going to be a Gentile branch of government. And so again, going back to our other thing is, is the church in Israel the same or are they separate? Like if, if we don't think there's any purpose for Israel today, like we're going to hate the millennial kingdom. Or if we don't like Jews and there's anti-Semitism, which I think is one of the gravest sins for the church. Because what's Paul say? We're grafted in. What are we grafted into? We're just a branch on the, on the tree of what? Israel. And how easily it invades our Christianity when we say things like, oh, we'll just Jew them down or I bet they're good with money. Repent of your racism. And so there's a Jewish branch of government. And so we're gonna see the fullness of it. It was like a chain of command. Think of, next slide. Think of when Moses uh, was put together like a structure of authority, this Jewish branch of government is gonna be in the millennium where Jesus is king, but then David. Again, so we we know Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected. He's going to be king and prince. We know in the gospels, the 12 apostles are going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Then there's going to be other princes and rulers. If you read Haggai, it talks about how Zerubbabel is going to be a prince. There's going to be other judges and counselors. And then look at this, Israel's over the Gentiles. So when we see these two branches of government, which one gets kind of a little higher place? Israel. Because that is God's chosen people. That is his nation. That is his royal priesthood. And we again, we are, we are grafted into that. So we have the Jewish branch of government. Now we have the Gentile branch of government. Jesus, king, again, right? Nobody's gonna take his spot. Then the church. We see this through revelation. We're gonna be in glorified bodies ruling with him. It says it right here. You are listed in scripture. I saw thrones, verse four, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed that's us. We are going to be given authority to judge and to rule. And I believe there are going to be different levels of authority. Well, why does he get a higher level of authority than me? Or why am I lower than that person? Go back to that doctrine of rewards. How did you live your life for Jesus? See, if all that mattered was to say a little sinner's prayer and get baptized and our lives didn't matter, we would just hold you under at the lake, right? Till the bubble stops. Send you on to be with the Lord. Amen. But our lives matter and how we live our lives matter. The things that we do, not trying to earn salvation, but the doctrine of rewards is there. And so we are going to be given a place of ruling and authority. And and then the next part of that verse says, and also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those are the tribulation saints. And then there's going to be other Kings. Now here's the crazy part the church and these tribulation saints that were killed we're going to be in glorified bodies but those that live through the tribulation that are allowed entrance into the millennial kingdom they're still going to be in mortal bodies and see this is where our theology gets a little shaky because we're we're going to read some of these passages and it's like well how can there be glorified bodies and mortal bodies living in the kingdom at the same time because we're talking about the millennial kingdom we're not just talking oh we all die and just go to heaven And there's going to be different Gentile nations that have a king over them. And then there's going to be those nations. And that's what Matthew 25 is talking about. It's not a salvation. Sometimes you'll see this mispreached where you're talking about, uh, if you remember the passage, it's like, hey, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. And they're like, you gave us something. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. You gave me food when I was hungry. You gave me clothing when I was naked. You visited me in prison. And they said, well, when did we do all of these things? Whatever the least of these you've done to my brothers. Who's Jesus referring to as his brothers? Israel. So in the seven years of tribulation, the other Gentile nations, because of, and this is on an individual level, because of their faith in Jesus, if they treat Israel, this remnant, these Jewish people well, because they're going to be so attacked, they will be allowed entrance into the millennial kingdom. And so why are they so good to Israel and these Jewish people? Because of their faith in Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, as we hold to a Jewish book who holds to Jewish promises. And so that's the sheep and the goats judgment. And we're going to get rid of them goats. And the sheep are going to be allowed in their their normal moral bodies to enter into the millennial kingdom. And we as the church in glorified bodies in that chain of command are going to rule over them. And so what's, what's life going to look like in the millennial kingdom? Like, what are we going to do? Is it just one big worship service? Some, some of you are like afraid of heaven because if we sang more than like four songs here, you get bored. Some of you get mad. Like, really? That's all we're going to do is sing? Or then if I, if I go five minutes over, be like, really? Come on, pastor. We got to go. Like, is heaven's just going to be this big worship service? And some of us don't, don't, don't seem too excited about heaven. But when we think, what's life in this millennial kingdom and why it's not the eternal state in heaven, I put it at the very top, because there is going to be evil. It will be limited, but it'll be judged immediately. Think of the views of Jesus that we've had in Revelation. Go even go into Psalm 2. He will rule with a rod of iron. If there's no evil, why would he need a rod of iron? If there's no evil, why would there need to be justice? There will be evil. Those mortals, that they get to walk into the millennial kingdom, there's actually, you read at the bottom, there's going to be procreation. There's still going to be kids. We're going to have baby showers in the millennial kingdom. But there'll be a falling away. That's why Satan is bound for a thousand years. And he's released at the end to act as if a magnet to pull all evil out of the millennial kingdom. And then he's going to throw all of that into the lake of fire. Then we enter the eternal state and all of us would be in glorified bodies but there's gonna be limited evil, but there's gonna be righteousness, universal peace, and that'll pass along even to the animal kingdom. Our cats and dogs will get along in the kingdom, amen? Like how much does God love us to keep the dogs from fighting? There's gonna be fullness of joy, holiness, a full glory of God. I love this one. The king will minister to every need. There will be comfort, perfect justice, full knowledge. There'll be a removal of the curse, sickness removed, healing of the deformed, and so when we think about that, people that were born here with any kind of deformity, is that, is that how they are in the kingdom? No, why? Because Christ is a healer. Well, he didn't heal him on this side of glory, I know. But he will on that side. There's gonna be freedom from oppression, no immaturity, procreation. We're gonna be working, there's gonna be laboring, but there's gonna be prosperity. We're gonna be in a unified language and a unified worship. Well, what kind of worship? Is Luke going to be leading worship in the kingdom? Is this going to be the style of worship? What's this going to look like? If we're grafted in, what do you think worship's going to look like? It's going to go back to a very Jewish context of our worship. So worship in the millennial, a couple of cool key thoughts is there's going to be a millennial temple, and you can look at Ezekiel 40 to 48 to really see the details of that. Here's the key thing. Jesus is going to rebuild the temple. See, a lot of us think that the temple is going to get rebuilt, And that's where uh, the Jews are going to start up their sacrifices and offerings again. We've talked about red heifers and all that. But that temple is going to be destroyed. That same temple that the Antichrist is going to stand in and proclaim himself to be God, that's going to be destroyed. And Jesus alone is going to rebuild that temple. Every once in a while, I get a few Instagram reels sent to me, you know, of different pastors and teachings, and they're like, hey, is this true? Like, what is this about? And I saw one of these, and I just wanted to take my phone and just like, chuck it across the room. There's this pastor, and he has like a, a Jewish uh, Israeli flag around his neck. They're waving these Israeli flags, and he's screaming into his mic that we need to nuke the temple mounts and eradicate anything islamic build the temple so we can usher in the kingdom so jesus will return did you hear what he just said it's all dependent upon us that poor little old jesus is sitting up there next to god in heaven saying i really hope this church can do this because like i'm really dependent and waiting upon them gag a maggot seriously (laughs) my goodness gracious Sorry. (laughs) Tell me how I really feel. I feel like I'm holding back a little bit, right? It was never dependent upon us. He will build his temple. I mean, think about it. He is a carpenter. And so when we look, even Isaiah 2 talks about it, Acts 15 is referencing Amos 9, that this temple will be rebuilt. And the description of this millennial temple in Ezekiel, highly detailed. So it is definitely not just simply symbolic, but is giving full details. And all the nations are going to gather there in the millennial kingdom to worship. And here's the crazy part. Offerings and sacrifices are going to be restarted that we're gonna have sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, not for our salvation, not like what Israel was doing. It'd be like a memorial, the same way we take communion. That's really not the body and the blood of Jesus. We're not killing Jesus again every month to take communion. It's a memorial, it's a symbol. And the same thing with those offerings and sacrifices. And it'll only be open on the Sabbath and on new moons. Do you see the context of the Jewishness? of what this millennial kingdom, this is where the fullness of all these promises given to Israel are going to be fulfilled. And he's going to reign for a thousand years and then Satan loosed all of that evil taken out, thrown into the lake of fire. And then new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem brought in. And that's the eternal state that we all live in glory. I've been asked the question, they're like, could there be another fall then, Right? Like, could could there be, could it all just like cycle again and like, oh, there's another angel and took another third out. And we got a new Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not in a glorified state in the garden. So when we enter into the eternal state, it'll all be glorified bodies and glory cannot take on the corruptible. And so we will live in eternity. And that is the no pain, no death. That's the fullness that we will live with him. Probably thinking, Nick, I just came to church because this has been a rough week and we're just geeking out on all this. And I still have to go back to a a horrible boss. My spouse is driving me up the wall. My kids are driving me crazy. They never sleep. They don't obey. Like what? My senior pastor, where I went, uh, I was a youth pastor before I came here. His name was Daryl Jones. And it was kind of cool. His mom went to the same church so every once in a while, I'd have to pulpit fill, right? And, and think of the, uh, the nervousness I would have when my senior pastor sitting over here, my boss, the guy writing the checks, right? But then his mom, who is way closer to the throne, you know what I mean? And her name was Myrna. And there was one Sunday I looked over and I even referenced her and I said, hey, I'm looking over at you for like a nod of approval. And Daryl opens up and he says, no, 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 I'm over here, I'm the boss. And I said, yeah, but she's closer to the throne. What I loved about Myrna, Daryl would tell the story frequently and I even received a couple of these cards. She would, she would write a card to her kids and grandkids for any kind of holiday event. If it was Groundhog's Day, she was buying cards for the kids. Happy Groundhog's Day. A little note of encouragement. Like who does that? Right. Connie, Connie Vanderbilt does that. That's awesome. No. And at the end of it, she would always put two words, be there. And even when you would talk with her one-on-one and you know, she'd come up and, hey, how's youth group going? Or, hey, you know, uh, let, me, let me correct your sermon a couple spots that you missed right there that I didn't want. No, she would, she would always end that and say, hey, be there. So we need to look at the details. Why? Because we wanna be there. That we have a God that has pursued us so much and he has done everything for us to what? Be there with him that we don't want to get deceived in the vague ambiguous, but we want to press on to a full relationship with Christ, continuing to allow Him that sanctifying work in our life, that it's not just about saying a sinner's prayer and then we just hold on until the end comes. Because again, if we don't know the details, how easily could we be deceived? But we want to be there. And so when people look at our lives and they're like, because of your faith in Jesus and you're you're serving in your church and you're serving outside of the church and and you're being the hands and the feet of Jesus in the workplace and you're loving unlovable people and you're befriending, broken, hurting, why are you doing those things? Because I'm a citizen of another kingdom, not this kingdom. Well, which kingdom? This kingdom. And Jesus is my king. And I want to be there. I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I'm simply already operating as if I was already there. Be there. And so as we go about our everyday, normal day lives, the mundaneness of it, going to work, coming home, going to lunch break, the activities of the kids, be there. Be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Show what it looks like, kingdom living. Give a glimpse of another way of life, that we are a peculiar people. Why? Because we're kingdom living in an earthly reality. That's what it means we've been talking about. You may have seen some of the shirts that we wear from Calvary that says kingdom before Calvary. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be added unto you. That we can, go back a slide for me if you would that we can have this life of, of a fullness of joy. Why? Because that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we can live a life of holiness and, and focused on the glory of God, that we can search for him for our comfort, that we wanna seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, that we wanna press in to the full knowledge of who he is and we praise him for the removal of the curse, that we have kingdom living in us, that it's not about this church and how great we can be. No, it's about kingdom impact in our lives and in those around us. Be there. So you might have to reevaluate your life and say, am I kingdom living right now? Am I, is Jesus, I love this prayer. Jesus, find us doing the last thing you've called us to do. Kingdom living. Start that now. Be there. Because one day, again, we're all gonna die. We're all gonna be resurrected. And we as believers, because of our faith in Jesus, we're all gonna walk through this. We're gonna see this. And we're all gonna look at each other and be like, this is the thing that we've been hoping for our whole lives of our faith in Jesus. The biblical hope that we have that he, God, is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And he's bringing in his kingdom and how much grace and mercy and love that he calls us to be a kingdom citizen of that. That what we'll see at the very end of Revelation, I will be their God and they will be my people, that he wants that union with us. Do not let the things of this world distract you, be there. Father, we love you, we trust you, we thank you. As we dig deep from your word, as a lot of it going over our heads, Lord, we know that that pool is deep, and I pray that we would keep walking out, even to the areas where we can't touch the bottom, because we need to be completely dependent upon you and keep calling us into deeper waters with you. And as we search your word this morning, search our hearts and our minds. And if you find anything in there, Lord, that is not of you, do heart surgery for us that we would be willing and open for that transformation that you want to bring about in our lives so that we would be your hands, your feet, your hearts to the world around us. And as we wait in the tension of the already and the not yet waiting for you to return, I pray that we would live as kingdom citizens, that we would be there. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...